0: 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In this letter, Paul is writing to the Church of God in Corinth, a congregation which he founded and where he preached for a year and a half. Now reports have come to him as well as a letter that this congregation has concluded that Paul's message was not quite right, that they understand better than he does the true nature of the Christian message and faith. While Paul begins by talking about the problem of divisions, this is but a symptom of the real problems. First of all, they have radically reworked the gospel. They've misunderstood the nature of the gospel. Secondly, they have embraced a cultural, from their cultural background, uh, an understanding of wisdom and seen this as the basis for understanding the gospel. And thirdly, they have rejected Paul, his authority as an apostle and his teachings as well. How does Paul respond? Well, he begins here at the beginning of the letter by pointing out to them that human wisdom, so-called, stands in contrast to three aspects of the Christian faith. We saw the first one last week. We will see the second and the third today. Human wisdom stands in contrast to the content of the gospel. We will see it also stands in contrast to the people of the gospel, and the preacher of the gospel. As we saw last week, the crucified Christ makes no sense to human wisdom, which is why, Paul argues, this is precisely why God chose this means of redemption, to destroy the wisdom of the wise and to frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent. Some people want concrete proof. They want miraculous signs to verify the truth of the gospel. Others want sort of a theoretical framework, an abstraction, a philosophic system that they can embrace, a system by which the gospel can be judged. And Paul argues that God doesn't do miracles. God doesn't do wisdom, at least not on these terms. God certainly has done miraculous things. God is all wise. But instead of going by the program of society and the culture, God has gone by his own. What He chose what human beings think is foolish. And he did this so that if a person, in fact, did come to faith in God, faith in Christ, it would not be because it made sense to them, but it would be a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul points out, listen, if the world did not know God through its own wisdom, then how will they, in fact, Or why would God then make a way of salvation and redemption based on human wisdom? If that human wisdom is not sufficient to get them to God, then why would it be sufficient for them to achieve salvation? The gospel is not a new wisdom. Rather, it is the end of human wisdom. It is when a person says, I trust God. I do not trust myself or my own ability. I trust God. Human wisdom, on the other hand, sits in judgment on God and makes decisions or judgments based on what he does. We don't like that thing that God did. We think that what God did there was wrong. This is human wisdom. If, in fact, the content of the gospel is foolishness to human wisdom, then why should we follow human wisdom? We must make a choice either the cross or the culture, the human wisdom. Now, I just want to make something clear, and I'm, I'm sure you know this but so that there's no misunderstanding. Paul is not saying that the gospel is, in fact, objectively foolish. Okay? He's not saying it's ridiculous. He's not saying that it doesn't make sense. What he's saying is that to those who embrace human wisdom, which stands in opposition to God... It seems to be foolishness. It does not seem to make sense. It doesn't seem logical. It's not the way that we would do things. And I say that simply because some people have reduced the gospel to foolishness, saying, well, after all, it is foolishness. No, it is foolishness to those who do not believe. Today we come to the second aspect of the gospel that stands in contrast to human wisdom, and that is the people of the gospel. And we see this in verses 26-26. Through 31 and follow along if you would as I read first Corinthians 1 beginning at verse 26 brothers think of what you were when you were called not many of you were wise by human standards not many were influential not many were of noble birth but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong he chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, that him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Paul now moves on to show that the Corinthians themselves are in fact proof or evidence that God doesn't do things the way that human beings would. That God has not done things the way that human wisdom would suggest. I would point out that as Paul begins this section, he starts out with the word brothers. That is to say, uh, he stands in unity with them, in spite of everything uh, they are his brothers in Christ. And he says, think of what you were when you were called. Now, this idea of being called goes back to verse number 24. And if you look at verse number 24, it says, but to those whom God has called. And I I think it's important because I think when we look at verse number 26, because of what follows, we focus on the wrong things. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were this, you weren't that. So we tend to focus on what you were. But I think Paul is focusing more on when you were called. Without question, Paul is trying to make a point about their status in the eyes of the world. That is based on human wisdom. But he's also trying to point out something to them, and that is, God has called them to be his people. They did not come to God on their own. They did not somehow stumble onto the gospel, or it isn't because that they are brilliant intellects that they now are Christians. They are Christians because God called them. And the same God who sent his son to be crucified, seems foolishness to unbelievers, is the same God who called these people. These people, whom, humanly speaking, you probably wouldn't want to have in your group if you were starting a religious or philosophic movement. Not many of you were wise by human standards, Paul says. Not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. And yet the irony is, by human standards, they weren't anything, and yet it is by human standards that they are now rejecting Paul, his authority and his message. Why does Paul mention these three things? That you were not wise, influential, or of noble birth. Well, the first two fits in with the argument, being wise, and wisdom is the issue at hand influential, which comes from the root word uh, dunamis, we get our word dynamite from it, power so again it's wisdom and power this, these have been two of the themes uh, you know, the Greeks want wisdom, the Jews want power, they want a miraculous sign and Paul's saying well listen guys, when God called you, you were not wise by world, the world standards you were not powerful Christ, on the other hand, is the power of God, as we read in verse 24, and he is the wisdom of God. So Christ stands in contrast to the world system. The world system, which would not have chosen these people, and yet now they're allying themselves with it. But why does Paul choose the third one? This is really somewhat uh, interesting. If you look at verse number 31, Paul says, as it is written. And there he quotes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9. Well, uh, it's Jeremiah 9.24. If you look at the previous verse, Jeremiah 9.23, this is what Jeremiah writes. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. So we have that triad. We have the wisdom, we have the strength, but Jeremiah writes of the rich, and Paul instead says of noble birth. Now, if you remember when we began our study in in the book of Corinthians, Corinth had been destroyed by the Romans. And then Julius Caesar rebuilt it, and he populated it with former slaves, with people who had been freed, people who retired from the military. So there was no nobility as such in Corinth. But it became very rich, it became a commercial center, and so their aristocracy, if you wish, was based on money. Well, not many of you were of noble birth <laughs> not many in Corinth were of noble birth but it is the hypocrisy of humanity that they try to pump themselves up to be something they're not and then look down on others and Paul says listen these people who think they're something are looking down on you you were not of noble birth by human standards just a, a parenthetical on the here Many people have used this passage to sort of prove that the early church was made up primarily of slaves. And that's simply not the case. We saw that when we went through the series on wealth and poverty. Also, when we began our series here uh, on Corinthians, Uh, we have uh, Crispus and Gaius, uh, Titius Justus, Stephanus, Fortunatus, all these various names that are given to us. Priscilla and Aquila, who had been expelled from Rome now live in Corinth, they move to Ephesus, then they move back to Rome. These are not slaves. These are people who have some uh, affluence. But it is worth noting that Paul says not many. He is well aware of the fact that, in fact, some of the people in the congregation are fairly well-to-do. The early church met in people's homes. This means, first, you have to own a home for that to happen. And secondly, it has to be large enough to hold the congregation. And in fact, that's what we find in the early church. But we miss the point if somehow, and and people have done this, and I I don't criticize them, if we do a sociological study, what was the sociological makeup of the church in Corinth? Some very good work has been done. Gert Tyson, a German theologian, has done work on the sociology of the Corinthian church. It's fascinating. But let's not miss Paul's point here. His point is this. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not, the nothings, if you wish, to nullify the things that are. The point is they did not come to the gospel on their own. God called them. God chose them. God called them. That's why they are God's people. I think the Corinthians have somehow lost sight of that. God chose the likes of these Corinthian believers to shame the world and basically to say to the world, your standards mean nothing to me. They are not good standards and a rejection of those standards. Paul is not trying to offend the Corinthians. He's not trying to demean them. Okay? He's not sort of saying, you know, I'm the boss and you're nothing type of deal. Uh, rather, he is pointing to them, or pointing out to them, God's character. How gracious God was. If we were God, and we had to choose, and we had to call who would be saved, we wouldn't have picked these people. We would have picked other people. But God is so gracious that he chose the rejects of society, if you wish, and he called them to be his people. And just as God chose a message that to the world seems foolish, God has also chosen people to become his people that the rest of the world basically would say, well, you can have them because we really don't want them. God chose a people that would shame the wise and the strong. Why shame? I don't know if you followed along as Agui was reading a reading from the Old Testament today in Psalm 35. May all who gloat over my distress be put to shame and confusion. May all who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and disgrace. Find this all throughout the Psalms in Psalm 6. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace. It doesn't speak of feeling ashamed. That's how we normally think of shame. Rather, it speaks of vindication. You think that this is ridiculous and this is foolish, and you sort of stand in pride saying, I reject that because that is not true. But one day, God will show it is in fact the truth, He will be vindicated, and those who have rejected him will be proved wrong. And so God chose the lowly things, the despised things, the nothings of society. Why? To nullify the things that are, that is, to render ineffective human wisdom. But most importantly, so that no one may boast before him. You see, God deliberately chose things that appear to be foolish the message of the cross, the Corinthian believers, so that he could remove forever any question from anybody's mind that somehow we have a reason to boast or to brag about the fact that we are Christians. By choosing the Corinthians and by choosing us, God declared that he has forever ruled out any imaginable human system that can gain his favor. We do not come to God on our own. We did not come to God on our own. He chose us and he called us. So, we've come to verse number 31, and we, we read, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, boast seems like a strange word, a very negative word, I think, for most of us. But it is another way of saying, Trust. But those who trust, trust in the Lord. It is because of him, Paul tells them, that you are in Christ Jesus. He chose you, he called you, you are in Christ Jesus because of him. It is because of God's activities that we are God's people. But do those activities include Jesus coming into the world? Yes, yes, yes. What God has done has, in fact, made it possible for us to become his people. And Christ has become for us wisdom from God. The true wisdom. Not the wisdom of the world that thinks it knows better than God, but true wisdom. And here Paul mentions three aspects of our salvation. Righteousness. We stand before God as without sin. Holiness. We are to live holy lives in this world. And redemption. We are freed from the power of sin. Paul says if you are going to put your trust in something, if you are going to boast about something, it should be in the God who has chosen you and called you, not in the fact that God chose and called you. If the Corinthians are listening, I think this is the most shocking thing that Paul will say to them thus far. By you being Christians, that stands in contrast to a system that you have embraced. But the third one, quickly, the preacher of the gospel. And this is found in verses 1 through 5 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom but on God's power. The message seems foolish the people seem foolish the messenger seems foolish as well. Paul sort of reviews his time among them. He does something else, and he sort of opens himself up for criticism. Uh, this will come up in Second Corinthians, where there are criticisms about Paul's public speaking, that apparently he's too timid when he speaks. They would rather he was a little more charismatic in his speaking. So Paul opens himself up here to say, listen, folks, you remember what I was like when I was with you. But he will explain to them why he was that way. You will notice that he uses, once again, the title brothers as he speaks to them. In verses 1 and 2, he speaks of the content of his preaching, which he's already talked about, the cross, that is foolishness. In verses 3, 4, and 5, the form of his preaching. Paul ended chapter 1 by saying that him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That is, if you're going to trust in anything, anyone trust in the Lord. And Paul says, that's what I did when I was with you in Corinth. I had no sense of self-sufficiency. I came with fear and trembling so that the power of God might be demonstrated. And so that your faith is not in Paul. It's like a great sermon, Paul. You really convinced me. But rather it would be a work of the Spirit to persuade them that what Paul was saying was true. You see, human wisdom has within it a sense of self-sufficiency a sense of self-congratulation. Paul is rejecting human wisdom. So why would he feel self-sufficient? Why would he embrace any sense of self-sufficiency? So Paul says that when he preached to them, it was not with the wisdom of the world, eloquence and superior wisdom. And we'll get into this later on as uh, when we get to chapter two, uh, more of chapter 2 but chapter 3. I'm convinced that this sort of begins what Paul does he uses their terms, their categories, in a sense, using them against him to make his point. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think we need to be clear that Paul is speaking in the context of something that the Jews rejected and something that the Greeks thought was, in fact, madness. Paul is not saying, you guys know, every time we got together, I preached about the crucifixion. Now, I don't think he's saying that at all. He's not saying that every sermon, every lesson should be about the crucifixion. Rather, he preached the whole truth to them, a truth that the world saw as foolishness, as madness and insanity. Now, without question, verses 3, 4, and 5 present real problems for a couple of reasons. First of all, they know what he's talking about. We don't. Um, if you look at verse number three, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Uh, they know this. Okay, They were witnesses to this fact. We weren't there. So we don't exactly know what Paul is talking about. There's something else. This seems So contrary to the way we imagine Paul. If I were to ask you, please write uh, a one-paragraph description of the Apostle Paul. I don't think any of us would say, uh, fear, trembling, weakness. I don't think any of those words would appear in that paragraph. That's not how we imagine the Apostle Paul. We imagine him as this dynamic speaker who spoke and people were converted Simply through the power of what he had to say. We're wrong. And Paul reminds the Corinthians of what they knew so well and what we need to learn. And that is, Paul was not the man we imagine him to be. He was a man who was not self sufficient. He was a man who, when he spoke, apparently there was weakness and fear and much trembling I think we would probably want to send Paul to a public speaking class to get over his stage fright so that he could learn not to be afraid in front of people no Paul doesn't want to get rid of that he wants so that when people are converted they won't say well you know Paul just did such a great job of preaching today that I just had to come and accept the message no it would be, you know, it's really hard to listen to Paul sometimes because it's whatever it was, and they knew what it was. It might have been some physical deformity, some tick. We don't know. But, you know, it's really hard to listen to Paul. It's, it's, sometimes I just have to close my eyes because I just can't stand to watch him when he's preaching. But the Spirit of God spoke to my heart. And I knew that what he was saying was true. The real power does not rest in the messenger, in the presentation. It rests in the work of the Spirit. When Paul speaks of wise and persuasive words, he's pointing to human standards. I think that Paul, when he spoke, I'm convinced that he did so in an organized way, in a structured way. I mean, we have records of some of his sermons from Acts. But he, didn't, he wasn't confident about his presentation. He was confident about the Spirit of God. By the way, to get back to the matter of fear, do you remember that when we started in Acts chapter 18, when Paul had been in Corinth for a while, the Lord Jesus spoke to him in a vision and said, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city generally speaking, you don't tell someone, do not be afraid, unless in fact they are afraid. But again, this runs so contrary to our vision of Paul. But Paul wanted them to know that if they came to see the truth, it was through the foolishness of this messenger. He could bring an unbeliever into the service and say, what in the world is that man doing? It would make sense, to those who believe. But to someone who does not believe the message seems strange, the congregation seems strange, the messenger seems strange. The Corinthians have forgotten that. They want to be mainstream. They want to be acceptable. They want to be able to invite their friends over and their friends not snicker at what's going on. Paul is saying, listen, Jesus Christ crucified That's foolishness to the world. And you might as well accept that. Paul, I don't know if he struggled with this, but we see it throughout his writings, that he rejected the sense of self-reliance. That he knew that there was a real danger in letting the presentation become more important than the message itself. Is it Marshall McLuhan who told us The medium is the message. Sadly enough, in the church, that has happened. Paul says, no, the message is the message. And the message is, to most people, madness. I think in our day, the danger is not wisdom. To be honest, I think if you ask the average person, what do you aspire to be, wise is not usually, I would think, in the top ten Maybe not even the top hundred. Okay. Our dangers, I think, are different. Our dangers are celebrity. As I mentioned in Sunday school, like Alicia, this famous person that you admire so much, this famous person is a Christian. Wouldn't you like to be a Christian like this person you admire? So it's no longer wisdom, but it's celebrity. I think it's entertainment, it's also a sense of purpose. Do you lack a sense of purpose in your life? Well, become a Christian and you'll have a sense of purpose. That is true, but that is not how the message is to be presented. The message is, you are separated from God. You need to be reconciled and God is calling you to be reconciled through the death of His Son. Paul depended on the work of the spirit not on himself many people today talk about the spirit I'm not sure that they are in fact depending on the spirit let me close with a story I heard it from someone else uh, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson former president from Texas uh, told a story about a pastor who was going to church one Sunday and on his way to church he was walking along and his sermon notes fell out of his Bible. And a dog came along and grabbed up his sermon and ran off with it. And so he had no sermon notes. You know, he chased the dog, he couldn't get it. So he had no sermon notes with, you know, to use to preach. And so when he got up to speak, he said, oh, I'm sorry, but today I'm going to have to depend on the work of the Spirit for my sermon but I promise I'll do better next week. Uh, I think that is closer to home than we realize. I'm convinced if we could go back in time, we would not recognize Paul. We would not recognize him. We, I think we project successful pastors back in time and say that's what Paul was like Paul says listen folks you're following after the world after the world our message is foolishness to them you are foolishness to them I am foolishness to them why would you then follow them God has chosen a means to save his people that will demonstrate not my ability not your ability, not our wisdom, but rather demonstrate the power of the Spirit to draw us to God, to open our eyes, turn us from darkness to light. The Corinthians had forgotten that. And if we have, may this be a good reminder for us today. Let's pray together. Father we are human we want to be liked we don't like to be rejected we don't like to be laughed at we don't want to be judged to be foolish and perhaps in the process we have tweaked your message we've left out the parts that might offend people we've reshaped it to make it more acceptable In the process, we have forgotten that at its heart, the gospel does not make sense to those who do not believe. But this was your way, your choice. That you chose and you called people that the world probably wouldn't call or choose. And that you have sent out messengers. That perhaps the world wouldn't choose. Certainly would not accept it. Their methods. The world would demand eloquence. Dynamic speaking style. We have forgotten that it is the power of the Spirit that gives us life. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that changes lives. That causes people to see the truth. They won't see it on their own. We didn't see it on our own. May we think on these things in the coming days. I thank you for the chance we have to worship together and ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together?